February morning, and we are back in the book of Ecclesiastes. Why am I here? Why am I here? It's a great question, uh, and I'm not asking the obvious. If I ask myself that question, why am I here? Well, I'm the pastor, I'm supposed to preach on Sundays, and this is my job. Of course, that's why I'm here. My question is, why are you here? But ultimately, it's far deeper than that. Why am I here? Why am I here? What's the purpose? What's the intent? But before we get to that topic, let's see how much you remember from last week as we started this series on the search for meaning from the book of Ecclesiastes. So uh, if you need sermon notes, would you raise your hand if you'd like them? And our ushers will get you those sermon notes so you can kind of follow along. If you didn't get one on the way in, just kindly slip up your hand and we'll get you that. So uh, let's look backwards before we look forward. So by way of review, all right, uh, who is the author of the book? How many of you think it's Solomon? How many of you think it's somebody else? Okay. Yeah, Jesus, always the right answer. All right, I was waiting for that one. Good. Uh, the author never does identify himself in this book. So we have to then dig a little deeper. Who might the author be? And for my study, I believe it was Solomon. Uh, why do I believe that? Well, several verses in the first chapter kind of indicate that. Uh, chapter 1, verse 12, I, the teacher, was king of Israel and lived in Jerusalem. And then in one one, I was King David's son. So we narrow that down. Solomon, Solomon, he was the son of whom? David and Bathsheba, correct. He was the son of David and Bathsheba. He succeeded his father, David, to the throne of Israel nearly 30 centuries ago while he was still a teenager. So he came into his kingship at a very early age. When was it written? When was this book written? Anybody remember from last week? About 935 B.C. Somebody was taking notes. I like it. Now, archaeologists confirm that Solomon was, in fact, a historical figure, king of Israel, uh, from 970 B.C. to about 930 B.C. And we believe that this book was written toward the end of his life and his reign, about 935 B.C. What are the two key words or phrases used throughout this book? Under the sun. Under the sun. Under the sun. Okay, we'll start with that one. Under the sun used 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and that phrase is found nowhere else in scripture, that particular Hebrew phrase. It describes the belief there is nothing beyond this moment. There is nothing beyond this world. There is nothing beyond this life and right now. Everything that we experience empirically is all that there is. There is no more to life than what we are experiencing right in this moment. Now, if I end with that, I end up in a pretty dark place because there's got to be more than this, I would think, somewhere, somehow. And that's the purpose of religion, to try to figure out what's beyond right here and right now. So uh, that's the one phrase. What's the other word or phrase that's used in this book? It's meaningless. It's meaningless. That's correct. In fact, he starts in chapter 1 right off the bat. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. And in chapter 12, we come back to that conclusion at the end of the book. Solomon writes, 
Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, that word can be translated vapor or breath. James, in the New Testament, would describe it as smoke. Just a wisp here today, gone tomorrow, so brief life is. Boom, what's the point? The word is used some 28 times in 12 chapters. And so we put these two concepts together, right? Everything is meaningless that's under the sun. In other words, if this is all we have is this existence for these few short years on earth, we are in deep water. It ends up being utterly meaningless. And so this is where Solomon is going. So what does the Hebrew name of this book and its author mean? We talked about this last week as well. Anybody got that one? And it is true, by the way. You will forget over 90% of what I say within 72 hours. And probably by a week at like 99.5%. That's why we review. Okay. Good. All right. The word in Hebrew is koheleth. Koheleth. It is the title of the book and the title of the author in the Hebrew language. It has a couple of different flavors to it. It can mean assembler of students or listeners. It can also mean collector of wise sayings. So the title of the book and the author is a collector of wise sayings. And so, depending on your version of the Bible, it may read philosopher or preacher or what I think is the most accurate teacher. I, the teacher. All right? So, that's where we were last week. So, we begin back into the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's find it in our Bibles. Where is it? And so, this slide will help us identify where in the Old Testament this book is. Now, how many books do we have in the Old Testament? This is bonus coverage, no extra charge. How many books in the Old Testament? No. That's close, though. That's close. In the Old Testament. Really? Okay, well, I'm not going to give you the answer. All right. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes is not to be confused with the book of Ecclesiasticus. You put in spell check, and it might come up Ecclesiasticus. Not the same book. That book is found in the Apocrypha, right? What is the Apocrypha? The word Apocrypha means hidden writings, hidden writings. And these are the writings of the intertestamental period. So for those of you that are going to check out mentally, because this is way over your, your pay grade, uh, kind of stay with me if you, if you will. Okay. Uh, there is the Old Testament and the New Testament. In between those is the intertestamental period, say from the end of, what's the last book in the Old Testament? Malachi? The Italian prophet, right? Okay, so, okay. Uh, from, from Malachi to the writing of Matthew, right? We've got about 400 years or so. That's why if you have a print Bible, who's got an actual print Bible in this place? Anybody? Can you bring one up, please? Thank you, Bill. Okay, he's turned the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, if I go to the end of the Old Testament, which is what? Yeah, in all of your Bibles, you will find a blank page, a blank page in your Bible. 
between Malachi and Matthew. That is the intertestamental period. Okay, Bill, thank you. Here's, sure, <laughs> sure, serve it up. Thank you, sir. Very good. Very good. So you'll notice you'll have a blank page there. That's the intertestamental period. That's what the Apocrypha covers. Now, these books, again, written over a 400-year period, they are included in the Catholic Bible, which is called the Douay-Rheims version of the Bible. The Apocrypha is. It's a collection of books, right? They are not in the Jewish scriptures. They are not in your Protestant Bible, all right? The authorship of the Apocrypha is highly questioned. I'm not going to talk about that. It's a whole different kind of thing. Uh, we're not going there this morning. But the authorship is highly questioned. They were not accepted into the Bible that you have in your hands, nor the Jewish scripture. It's never quoted by Jesus. It's never quoted by Jesus' disciples, even though Jesus quoted from every other section of the Old Testament. That's one of the primary reasons we don't have that. So we're talking about the book of Ecclesiastes. Not the book of Ecclesiasticus. Okay? Everybody clear on that one? Good. Now, Ecclesiastes is part of the five books in the Old Testament called the wisdom literature. What are those five books? Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Those five books are called the wisdom literature. So Ecclesiastes is one book in what's called the wisdom literature. It's a genre of writing common in the ancient Near East. And it's made up of statements by wise men talking about God and life in general. That's why it's called the wisdom literature. Those five books of the Old Testament. Okay? Now, we've already learned that the guy who wrote this book is named Solomon. He is the ultimate wise guy. Is that correct? The guy who had the most wisdom, the wisest man who ever lived, the scriptures say. Where did he get this wisdom from? How did that all go down? Well, God appeared to Solomon directly two times as recorded in scripture. Here's one of them. God appeared to Solomon said, and this is recorded in 2 Chronicles, God appeared to Solomon and said, what do you want? Ask and I will give it to you. Interesting question from God, isn't it? I'll give you whatever you want. He's not the genie in the bottle that says, oh, I'll grant you three wishes. But he says, Solomon, I'll give you whatever you want. What if God appeared to you and said that? I'll give you whatever you want. What would you ask for? What would I ask for? It's an interesting question, but here we go. Here's what Solomon said. He replied to God, you showed great and faithful love to David, my father, and now you've made me king in his place. Oh, Lord God, you've made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me the wisdom and knowledge to lead them properly, for who could possibly govern this great people of yours? God said to Solomon, because your greatest desire is to help your people, and you didn't ask for wealth, riches, fame, or even the death of your enemies, or a long life, but rather you asked for wisdom and knowledge to properly govern my people, I will certainly give you the wisdom and knowledge you require requested, but I will also give you wealth, riches, and fame such as no other king has had before you or will ever have in the future. Wow. So he got it right. What do you want? God asked. Uh, Can you give me wisdom to lead your people? Hmm. That I can do, and I'm going to give you so much more because he asked the right thing. Wow. What a good God he is, right? 
All right. So this morning, I want to look at the first 11 verses of the book of Ecclesiastes and examine the question, why am I here? Now, now, let me just stop here and ask, what questions do you have? I want to make sure, as I give you this background material in the book of Ecclesiastes, that we're all on the same page, right? We're building a foundation here, because we're going to be in this book for several months. What questions do you have about what we just talked about? Everybody clear? Who's the author, when it was written, what it means, all that stuff. Okay, now's the time to ask. Go ahead. Hmm? To serve God. That's ultimately where we're going with this. Absolutely. Good. Good. Anybody else? Oh, when an elder raises his hand, I always go like, oh, this will be fun. This will be fun. Good. Mr. Meerding. Did uh, God answer Solomon's prayer for wisdom? And if so, how come his life ended up in a shambles? Yeah. And we'll, we'll kind of unpackage this. If God did, in fact, answer, and Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, why didn't he follow his own advice? He's human. Is there anything wrong with being human? No, there's not. No, there's not. <laughs> Unless you're an alien life form. And they may be among us. I'm not quite sure. You see, the difficulty is not the fact that God created human beings, male and female. He made them, correct? The problem is with our sin nature. The problem is not being human. The problem has always been sin. There's nothing wrong with being human. Don't confuse the two, right? We have embedded within us a sin nature. That's what gets us into trouble. Being human, uh, that's the way God intended, right? Okay, so uh, he was human, right? And he was a sinner because all of sin falls short of the glory of God, right? But as we talked about last week, what led Solomon's heart away from God? Women. Uh, okay. Yeah, I said it, didn't I? It wasn't women who led his heart astray. What was it? Wealth. Yeah, he had so much of everything, right? Right. Power, possessions, women. Everything in his control. And as you recall last week, you talked about the fact that Solomon rose to power uh, through political alliances made by marrying other countries' eligible women. And as he brought those women into Israel and surrounded his life with their idols, as we looked at last week, remember, they eventually his heart turned away from God. So the wisest man in the world failed to follow his own advice. Why, when God gives us wisdom, do we kind of fumble it? You ever done that? When God gives you incredible insight and direction, and yet we muff it? Anybody else have that besides me? Yeah, yeah. We've all done it, correct? And we're going to find out why as we discuss it. That's a very, very good question. Good. So we're back in the first verses. I encourage you to bring a friend, come back. We're going to be looking at the search for meaning. And we're going to be answering some of life's difficult questions, I hope, from the word of God. So uh, hear the word of the Lord then. 
Hey, Maya, do we have these, this whole passage on next? Okay, good, good. Before everybody falls asleep on me, why don't we stand together, right? Let's read the Word of God together. Let's stand out of reverence to the Word of God. And again, um, I, I always, I, this always is intriguing to me. We stand to sing and we sit to listen to the Word of God. It hasn't always been that way. In fact, if you visit the great cathedrals of Europe, the people stood while the word was read from up high, and you stood for the entire service, just like I have to. (laughs) Okay, all right, so let's read together, shall we? Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises, the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south, then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the waters return again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, hey, here's something new. But actually, it's old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past. And in the future generations, no one will remember what we're doing now. That it? Pretty depressing. Thank you. You may be seated. Good. Good. So, hear the teacher cry out. Look around, folks. Just take a look at nature and, the, and what's out there and, and what's happening. The sun rises, the sun sets. The wind blows out of the south and shifts back around to the north. How many of you enjoyed that happening from Thursday to Friday? Coming out of the south, switches back to the north, and the temperature drops to like 40 degrees, right? Huh, isn't this fun? The rain come, rivers carry it back to the sea, it's evaporated, goes back up into the clouds, happens all over again. What goes around comes around, right? That's what he said, what goes around comes And you're just some snack on somebody else's food chain along the line. This is really good. We're never satisfied. No matter how much we have, we are not satisfied. No matter how much uh, we've seen, how much we've heard, we're discontent, we're bored, we're restless, we're always searching, never satisfied. There's nothing but the same old, same old. Nobody's going to remember us or even give a rip after we're gone. So let me summarize this passage again. Why am I here? If this is the way it is, it seems pretty meaningless. Why am I here? Hmm. So I found a couple great quotes from some renowned theologians. Some of you may be familiar with them. Some of you may not that address the question. The first one is George Harrison. How many of you have heard of George Harrison? Okay. Excellent theologian from the Beatles, right? (laughs) The purpose of life is to find out who I am and where am I going and why am I here? Ah, searching individual. I thought Meatloaf, another renowned theologian, uh, sagely spoke, who am I? Why am I here? Forget the question. Someone give me another beer. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So enough of that, right? 
people searching, searching for answers, searching for purpose, searching for me. Now, I'm a bottom line kind of guy. Don't beat around the bush. Don't bury me in verbiage. Get to the point. Here's Solomon's point. There's nothing new. Nothing new. Uh Uh-uh. Not going to be anything new. In fact, Solomon's saying, I had it all. I've tried it all. I've experienced it all. It didn't satisfy. So what he starts to do is chip away and begin destroying our own confidence in our own efforts, in our own abilities, in our own desires to find some kind of purpose and meaning. He starts chiseling away at it. Maybe there's something to be found in what we do. Maybe my job can help me make sense of why I'm here. Maybe that's who I am. Maybe that's my purpose in life. It's from what I do. Hmm, I don't think so. Maybe there is real meaning in moving up, climbing the ladder, having satisfaction in my job, doing a great job, hearing the accolades. Uh, Maybe if I can just perform more. But look again at verse 3. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Money, but that's that's a rhetorical question. What's a rhetorical question? What is a rhetorical question? That's what he's asking here. Rhetorical question? Okay. That's a question that's asked in order to make a dramatic effect or make a point. There's no answer expected. And so in the Bible, there are many rhetorical questions. They're not asking for an answer They're just making a point by the question. So Solomon's not asking for an answer. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? It's obvious from his life, nothing, nothing. Solomon says there's got to be more than what we are doing. So after you punched out at the end of the day and you're sitting in your recliner, have you ever wondered why in the world am I doing this? Now, thank you. That's where a lot of us are, right? Why am I doing this? Why is my job, that which kind of identifies me, we're going to talk more about this next week uh, as we unpackage this thought, Uh, but but why is this so important? I invest the majority of my life, my awake hours, at this, and why? What's the purpose to all this? To make money for somebody else? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this you see everything you and i have or earn is going back into the box and when you're done with the board game you put all the pieces back into the box and the next time it's open somebody's going to open the box they're going to get the pieces out and all the pieces go back in the box someone else is going to get all your stuff Someone else is going to get all your stuff. Someone else gets all your numbers. They're going to get your phone number, right? They're going to get your old football jersey number, football star, right? They're going to get your street number. They're going to get your account number. They're going to get all your numbers. Somebody else is going to play with your pieces. So why are you doing this? Why are you killing yourself doing this, Solomon asked. What is the purpose to this? Now, I've had the marvelous opportunity as a pastor to help people through the dying process Honestly, I find it very profound and very, very meaningful. The things people say at the end of their lives are really worth listening to. There's a lot of blah, 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 blah. People get down to the end of their lives and they know this is it. They start saying some of the most profound things and asking some of the most profound questions. I love those moments. And no one, no one has ever said to me, nor I doubt they ever will say to me, you know what, John, I wish I could have spent more time at the office. I wish I would have just worked extra hard and made another hundred grand. No one has ever, ever said that. 
And I doubt if they ever, ever will. What people regret most coming down to the finish line is their failure to see the significance of God and people in their lives and living for that rather than for that. And I'll sit, stand here, and I'll tell you that. I'll tell myself that. And we'll go right back out and jump right back into the race. And here we go again. Guarantee it'll happen. Guarantee it'll happen. But maybe someone will get the point. We spend our lives chasing after so many things. What's it all about? What's the purpose to all this anyway? Why are we doing this? Why in the world am I here? I'm just one face among billions and billions of people hurtling through infinite space to who knows where we're going. What's the point of going on day after day in the same meaningless way? Why? Why? Is life really worth living? Many people are checking out. Say, no, it's not worth living. I'm going to end it because there is no purpose. There is no meaning. Those are some of life's great questions. They're deep. They're profound. And yet... We've got to wrestle with this. Now, last week we mentioned that it's been said that within every person is a God-shaped vacuum. I am convinced that is true. God has placed eternity in our hearts, Solomon wrote, but we can't recognize it. He has placed eternity in our hearts, but we can't recognize it. We'll come to that verse a little later. I found that only God can fill this hole that's in our soul. And we saw in Ecclesiastes 1, we're always want more never hear enough never do enough never have enough and so from a very early age we find ourselves on the prowl searching to satisfy this inner unexplainable yearning that we have that there's got to be something more this hunger causes us to find our significance in what we have or in what others think of us. And so we spend our lives on this platform. Our desire for significance pressures us to perform so that we can have more, have the latest, or we can have the praise of others somehow in our convoluted thinking that if we just do more, if we just perform better, people will like us more and they'll love us more. And that's where we'll find meaning. It's not true. So we drive our bodies harder, we tax our minds to the maximum faster farther got to do it more got to do it better hoping that because of our sweat and sacrifice someone else will take notice and appreciate it and love us and then we'll have significance how do i know because i've tried it and it's never worked And there's times I keep trying it, and it still doesn't work. We soon realize the world is filled with pain and rejection and failure and selfishness. And we've got to come to a point where we say life is pointless. It is pointless except for God. It is pointless. Only he can satisfy for the long haul. Only he can make sense of this all. Kind of... Get us on the right track. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That's why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing apart from God. It is meaningless. It is utterly meaningless. 
And I'm hoping somebody might just take a trip off of the endless wheels that we've got spinning and plates in the air and, the, and being a hamster on the, the endless wheel just kind of grinding through life. And someone's going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got to make some sense of this. You know, the Baptist Catechism asks a very important question. What is the chief end of man? That's a profound question. Theologically, that's a profound question. What is the chief end of man? And the response to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I love that. It is truth. But it lacks some application, doesn't it? How do I get there? How do I get there? How do I get to the point where I can glorify God and enjoy him forever? Hmm. Now, at the end of his life, Solomon found there is meaning to life. At the very end, I believe he comes back to what he knows to be the truth. There is a point to all this. We're not just going through the motions. Over this next month, we're going to be hammering these questions. Why? Why are we doing this? Why? What do we do instead of this? Listen to the words of the wisest man who ever lived. He says, God is trustworthy. Read the last verse of the book. The last and final word is this. Fear God, do what he tells you, and that's it. Wow, sounds a little too simplistic, does it not? Fear God, great question last week, Marl. Reverence him, surrender to him, do what he tells you, and that's it. Doesn't that sound too easy? Doesn't that sound trite? Huh. Now next week we'll address the question, why does my work seem so much like work? We'll dig into that a little bit more, but lest we get the cart before the horse let me ask you why are you here where is your identity coming from now last week I asked that question is your life meaningful or is it meaningless which way are your feet pointed is it towards meaningless or is it pointed towards meaningful Those are questions we've got to wrestle with. Now, Jesus said, as recorded in John 10, 10, this, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Now, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Now, I'm convinced in this room right now, a whole bunch of people in the camp is divided. The camp is divided. Most of you in this room are Jesus followers. That is terrific. You are on the left side of the comma. Because the important thing is, which side of the comma are you on? Jesus said, I have come that you may have life. Most of the people in this room says, yes, I have life. I asked Jesus into my heart. I prayed the prayer. I did the thing that you're supposed to do. And I know that I have Jesus and one day I'm going to heaven. Good. Great start. Great start. I have come that you may have life. Isn't that why Jesus came to give us life, to free us from our sin and offers us the gift of eternal life, right? We all understand that. We all understand that. Some have acted on, some have not. But that is the truth of Scripture. I've come that you may have life. Then he says this, and have it to the full. So which side of the comma are you on? Would you say your life is full and meaningful, or do we just have life and we're kind of hanging around doing this earthly existence thing, pounding it out week after week, not really knowing why in the world we're here, just kind of hanging on for heaven, because that's got to be a lot better than this purgatory that I'm living in now, my job. Yes, sir. Huh. Hmm. Which side of the commune? 
You got life? If you found life in Jesus, it's liberating. It's wonderful. It's transforming. It's life-changing. Absolutely. But he says, I came that it might be full. Not then, right now. Full. Full. Purpose, full. Meaning, full. That's what God wants for all of his children. A meaningful, purposeful life. So how do we get there? Got to put God in the center. See, I'm convinced if he is at the center, we make the Lord of the center of our lives, the circumference will take care of itself. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Everything else will be added unto you, Jesus said. But we have to put him in first place in our lives. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Our search for significance begins by dying and surrendering. That's where it begins, moment by moment, day by day. I have to die, I have to surrender. Who is going to be the leader of my life, the Lord of my life? Only he can satisfy a searching soul. So I'm convinced if we put him moment by moment in his rightful place as the Lord of our lives, he will then put us in our rightful place. And you know where our rightful place is as a follower of Jesus? To be his child, To be his child. And what parent here doesn't want meaning and purpose for their children? We all desperately as parents want that for our kids and for our grandkids. Is that true? And if we put him in his rightful place as the leader and lord of our lives, we assume our rightful place as his child. Whom he loves dearly. Who he just loves to love on and embrace. And bring purpose and meaning. To our lives. I think it's important that we take a moment and just listen to what he's saying. Because understand, this is stuff that I wrestle with, and that's why we're looking at Ecclesiastes, because I have the same questions. Where are we, friends? Which side of the comma? Meaningful purposeful that's God's plan that's his desire for you and it's right there right there for the asking as we make Jesus the Lord of our lives let's take just a moment and listen to what he's saying okay because I don't want us just streaming out of here going warming up our cars turning the heat on rushing out hitting Monday again wham right back into that race without contemplating why in the world am I here why in the world am I here and is my life full let's pray together shall we would you bow with me Father, thank you so much for your patience with us.